Paris on uh, Friday. Uh, Canada's response, our Prime Minister's response, and we saw his, uh, we heard him again there in the newscast. We've seen him on TV all weekend long. What, what a peculiar address on Friday. And I don't know if I appreciate this soft-speaking, comforting Prime Minister of ours. Yeah, I get that he wants to sound solemn and serious, but he just really came across to me on Friday as, as disconnected, detached from it all. And it, it was a little unsettling. Look, he's, he's a brand new prime minister just settling into the role. He's now thrust into this international situation in this crisis. And I get there's probably going to be a learning curve. I'm, I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, but that bizarre statement on Friday and today, his, his answers about the ISIS mission, which just still don't quite make sense. Why is it that we're ending the bombing campaign? He's, he still fails to articulate a reason for that. Although, uh, again, as, as you heard in the news, he, he says that Canada will be uh, a strong member of the anti-ISIS coalition. I guess we'll just do so in a different way. Yeah, it's weird. He's got at his disposal. And I, and, I, and I mean it when I say at his disposal. He's got Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin, and Stephen Harper. Three prime ministers, three former prime ministers who oversaw combat missions. He could call any one of them for pointers. And you know what, frankly, I would really appreciate it. And if they want to keep it on the down low and just between the two of them, that's fine. But Justin, give Steve a call. Say, so what should I do here? How do I talk to these people? Because this is a tough one. I don't envy the fact that he's been on the job for almost a month now, and already he's got to deal with an attack on an allied nation and what to do with the Canadian forces and all of this stuff. I bet it's hard. And it's like you, Rob. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. But there's really nothing wrong when you're talking about being a global player here, being part of NATO, being allied with France, being good friends with the U.S. There's really nothing wrong with gulping down a little bit of pride, calling the guy you just beat in the election and saying, hey, Steve, how do I, how do, I do this? Give me some pointers. Well, that's not going to happen, nope. but um, nope. <laughs> just in, in terms of how we deal with ISIS, what, what does this tell us about their strength, their capability, their intent, their strategy? Uh, is this an escalation? Is this uh, a sign of desperation on their part, a sign of things to come? Uh, joining us for some further insight, uh, David Gardenstein-Ross uh, joins us on the line as a senior fellow with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, DefendDemocracy.org. David, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks. It's always good to join you, Rob. All right. Can, can we state at this point with certainty that this was ISIS, this this was authorized, planned by, executed by ISIS? We can say with certainty that ISIS was involved uh, in, in significant ways. Uh, I think we're at about, you know, a, a 95 to 98 percent chance that it was ISIS. Uh, there's still there's still things that are not known about the operation. You still have an operative at loose, um, one who was initially captured by French authorities at the border and uh, then freed. Uh, and but but what we do have is you know you have a mastermind who's been named, which is significant. Uh, the mastermind is in fact affiliated with ISIS networks. Um, it's French-speaking ISIS networks that are trying to strike Europe. So we we know at the very least that there is a significant ISIS role, and increasingly um, evidence is pointing to the attack having been ordered uh, from Syria. So I wouldn't say we're at you know, 100% knowing the contours of the plot, 
but we're pretty close. Mm-hmm. And we talk about that plot. This doesn't look like a, a typical uh, terrorist plot, at least maybe not that what we would see as typical in terms of a market bombing or something like that. This this has some more resemblance to what we saw in Mumbai several years ago, in that it's uh, uh, you know multiple attackers trying to carry out a coordinated event uh, that's not over right after it begins. That's uh, precisely correct. Um, this is what I'd call an urban warfare plot, uh, one where it, it's designed to maximize casualties and to extend for a, as great a period uh, as, as they can. Now, if, if instead of executing hostages in the theater, they had instead uh, tried to, to keep hostages, right, rather than just going around killing people, they might have been able to extend this out further. But also, you know, when you're dealing with French authorities, um, they're a lot more effective than, uh, you know, Indian authorities at Mumbai or uh, Kenyan authorities at the Westgate Mall at, at emptying out uh, and, and freeing hostages. So that might have uh, tilted uh, their view. But in urban warfare, you get to shut down large parts of the city for an extended period. Uh, a bombing is over basically right when it happens. Sometimes there will be follow-on attacks. And the purpose of urban warfare is to extend the horror, uh, make sure that uh, it, it gets maximum coverage, and that it lasts as long as possible. Well, to that end, then, Devi, what are they trying to accomplish here? Uh, to strike terror into the heart of France. Uh, I think a second thing they'd like to do is to drive a greater wedge between France's Muslim population and the rest of the population there uh, in order to make it easier for them to recruit from that Muslim population after causing the problem in the first place. Um, it shows their strength, something which is, ISIS is heavily recruited around. They're an organization that is dependent upon constantly fostering a perception that they have momentum, that they have strength. And uh, as they've, they've experienced loss after loss in Iraq and Syria in recent months, including most dramatically uh, losing Sinjar, uh, that is something which, which has done a lot of damage to their so-called caliphate. But being able to carry out a massive attack like this on top of other massive attacks, you know, the attack against the Russian plane, which is the deadliest terrorist attack in Russia's history, their attack in Lebanon. Um, all, all of these put together uh, are able to demonstrate a vibrant organization, and that's something that they recruit around. That's something that they use to help draw people to them. Should we see it the other way, though? Um, the, not everyone in the theater was killed. The bombers didn't get into the stadium. Uh, so despite the, the horror and the tragically high death toll, uh, the reality is things could have been a lot worse. Should we see it as though they're not as effective as they would like to be? Well, I think that the measurement of whether a terrorist attack is effective for the terrorists is not whether they kill absolutely everyone they could, but whether it's an attack that does a lot of damage. You know, look, we live in, in, in societies in, in the U.S., in Canada, and in France, where there inherently are a lot of vulnerabilities. Um, we live in societies that are not fully securitized, nor do they want, we want them to be. So, like, walking down the street, you can intuitively see, if you were a terrorist, where you might do damage. But just because they don't do maximum damage doesn't mean it's not effective. In this case, they got eight, at least eight operatives under the radar of authorities. They were able to carry out multiple simultaneous attacks. You know, if their bomber had gotten into the stadium, uh, it would have been even worse. Like, they had two suicide bombers at the stadium uh, with a major... Uh, football match going on. And if they'd been able to uh, insert the first bomber, that could have caused a stampede, driving the crowd uh, into the arms of the second suicide bomber. Yeah, things could have been worse. But overall, 
with as many people dead as they are, uh, and you know the shock that this delivered, um, not just to France but to the West as a whole. Um, this is is something that I, I think there's no way we could say it was anything but effective from their perspective. You know, in terms of of using this as a gauge as to how strong ISIS is, as you say, that they that they would be capable of of something as coordinated and organized as this tells us something. But um, you know, they, they could be losing territory on the ground in their so-called caliphate and and still be able to execute this almost as a, a sign of desperation. D- does it indicate to us whether they're they're getting stronger or weaker, or does it tell us anything at all about that? It doesn't, but what it does indicate is that their external operations capabilities are getting stronger. Um, the fact that they're able to carry out an attack like this in the West when they failed earlier this year, uh, when they tried to, to do something similar with operatives who, like the operatives here, were based in Belgium, you know, that in- indicates they have a stronger external operations capability. Um, you know, It doesn't indicate that they're getting stronger or weaker in Iraq and Syria, but the fact is that they're getting weaker in Iraq and Syria. Right. One can determine that not by through this attack, but just by looking at the facts on the ground, where they've experienced about two months of losses, where Iraqi security forces have taken Ramadi, uh, and where um, – or not taken Ramadi, sorry, but taken the train station in Ramadi, mm-hmm. meaning they're starting to make incursions into one of the areas that ISIS most prominently gained, and where ISIS has lost Sinjar. All of these um, are indicative of, of the fact that they are becoming weaker there. But they're also – there's not an indication that, that they're at a point of desperation yet. Uh, sometimes we tend to read those things in. I'm not persuaded that we can definitively say, well, they only did this because they're desperate. The fact is, when they were in a much stronger position back in January in Iraq and Syria, they tried to do something very similar. Uh, and and uh, so for that reason, um, this is, is not a shift on their part. It's pretty consistent with what, they're, with what they've been trying for um, – over a year now, right? Do, do we connect uh, this this French attack uh, on Friday to uh, Charlie Hebdo in any way? Uh, well, Charlie Hebdo was ACAP. It was Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, right? And um, you know the follow-on attack by Ahmadi Koulibaly uh, at the kosher supermarket. He was he was an ISIS supporter, uh, but you also didn't have the same sort of link between him and ISIS leadership uh, in Raqqa, Syria, that you have in this case. But in this case, it's very clear that at least some of the attackers trained in Syria at ISIS uh, training camps. Like that, that, that seems to be very clear at this point in time. Um, and so that, that's, that, that's different than the Koulibaly case. I, mean, I think you do lift them just in the sense that both are attacks in France um, and uh, you know, the, the, the nexus to France um, and, uh, means something. But they were carried out by different organizations. So right. It's not, I, it's not like this is a continuation of the first. Right. I just from from an intelligence perspective, though, I mean, what, what in, what's interesting to me about this particular attack is that uh, Western nations have this you know multi billion dollar intelligence network basically that, that operates to to try to thwart these sorts of things. So when they happen, it's sort yeah. of surprising, and you you wonder how it was porous, how this how this was allowed to happen or, 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 or how it just did happen. And I guess we'll only know that in retrospect. But, you know, is, is the intelligence um, network in France such that they've got tabs on everybody? Or it's, it's a hard question to ask because I'm asking how did this happen and nobody knows. Right. No, no, it, what we can say is that, um, number one, the fact that eight people were at least were able to plot something like this without being detected is striking. It's the kind of thing that some experts, frankly, said could, could not occur. 
in the current age. Not only do they avoid detection, um, you know, they avoided authorities coming in and disrupting the plot. Uh, for a plot of this magnitude, that's not easy. Um, now, uh, you're facing a number of factors that inherently drive up the risk. One factor is that uh, you have, in France, um, about 1,700 Frenchmen who've gone to Iraq and Syria as so-called foreign fighters. That means you have a, a very big uh, network of militancy in France. So it's hard for them to monitor all of the potential plots, all of the potential terrorists. That's the first thing. The second thing is you have things like Edward Snowden's revelations about Western surveillance. Um, understanding the uh, potential and the limitations of Western surveillance allows militant groups to better avoid it. Uh, then third, you have just a proliferation of encryption technologies and the kind of things that are designed to make it more difficult uh, for surveillance to occur. The combination of all of this uh, creates a situation where uh, uh, inherently uh, it's more difficult for French authorities to keep tabs on every possible plot. So does that make a city like Paris then more vulnerable than, say, New York or Washington or Toronto or Ottawa, for that matter? Yes, it is more vulnerable. Sure. I mean, it's more vulnerable for a number of reasons. One is you have you have a greater degree of problem in Paris than you do in any of the other locations. But let's be clear, there's a problem with Islamic militancy in all the places that you name. There's a problem in New York City. There's a problem in Ottawa. But the scale of problem is just far less than Paris. It's just it's not comparable. You have a problem. And, you know, in Ottawa, for example, you've had um, the uh, – you had both the Ottawa attack last year, which was ISIS-inspired, and uh, you also had – uh, you know, consistent recruitment of people by Shabab networks. There's, there's a problem. Yeah. But the Paris problem is just, it, it dwarfs the problem in North America. And then the second thing is to get operatives from Syria into Europe is just much easier than getting operatives from Syria or Iraq into the U.S. or Canada. Like, it, it, it's a much bigger challenge to get them over to North America. So we're not invulnerable, but it is harder to strike the U.S. or Canada. Well, and from your perspective, then, to, to that point, David, are we making ourselves at all more vulnerable by, by bringing in refugees? Obviously, it's a debate in the U.S. It's a, it's a big debate here, too. The answer is yes, uh, we are. I mean, there's, uh, now, I think one can question the degree. I think that's where the debate lies. But in terms of the question of whether we make ourselves more vulnerable, there's not really, there's not really a question uh, unless... Uh, there's not really a question that it does increase vulnerability. Uh, because for refugee populations, I don't think that uh, it's an effective way to land an operative in general into the U.S. or Canada, unlike Europe, where I think that they can more effectively insert operatives posing as refugees. But given uh, the numbers that uh, the U.S. or Canada are accepting versus Europe, um, it's just it's, it, it would take longer than just if you have someone who's a clean skin who can pass that sort of screening you can put them on a plane rather than trying to insert them as a refugee. Uh, then the, the, um, so, but, but, but with the refugee population, inherently when you have refugee populations, um, you know, you have things like, number one, um, there often are integration issues. Not, that's, that's just the case when one is forcibly um, expelled from their land uh, and has to go to a completely new and different society. There's going to be some integration issues. A lot of them will have you know, PTSD and other things that come from leaving uh, a, a war zone. Uh, there's already reports in, in Europe about how militant groups are trying to recruit the refugee population 
In Europe, with the, the very large refugee population, you have other problems related to it, like human trafficking, uh, organized crime trying to exploit these populations. Again, those things tend to be um, uh, attached to large uh, transfers of migrant populations, uh, not through any fault of the migrants, but that's just kind of an inherent thing when you uproot a large number of people. Um, and then, so the, the concerns that would exist would be both an operative being inserted, which I, I think, uh, you know, the smaller the population accepted, the least, the less likely that is. But then the second problem, uh, the second concern would be people being radicalized after the fact, just like the Boston bombers, for example, right. uh, were, uh, their parents originally came to the U.S. as refugees. Both of them were radicalized after being in the United States, and then they carried out that horrific attack. So there is a risk. There's not a question that there's a risk. The question really is how high a risk, but that it exists, I think, cannot reasonably be denied. Then, then, uh, well, then we've got to spend time wringing our hands to figure out how to mitigate that risk, and I, I would argue that making enemies out of them before they come isn't the best way. <laughs> Okay, I'm not, I'm not sure what policy that's that's speaking to. Well, it's not so much policy as it is just a conjecture in the conversation that we have in 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 this country. And, and if we look uh, uh, to the south right now, that uh, there are many state governors who are stepping up to saying that they won't accept refugees into their states. I don't know if they have the power to do that necessarily, but it certainly speaks to the xenophobia that might cause uh, uh, people well, to feel uh, marginalized and, and radicalized. It can, but like at the same time, that that's. A little bit of a circular argument, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, because because at the end of the day, like, if you didn't, I, I mean, look, if you if your position is we're not going to take refugees, then the risk you face from a refugee population is literally zero. Now, it could create some internal risks, but um, I think look, I don't think it's an unreasonable conversation to have. Um, it, it, now, I'm not saying look, I'm not following the the conversations that are going on, and so I'm not saying that there isn't xenophobia. I mean the Typically, um, you know, there is xenophobia in this world. Uh, but I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that when I look at the discussion of, of risks that are posed by this population, um, I, I'm not particularly happy with the discussion at any point in the scale. I think there is some exaggeration of risk that it poses. And then there's also like a complete discarding of these risks as well. It, the r risks are real. And, and, um, you know, I, I think that, that there's, you know, look, we as, as a political society, uh, whether it's the U.S. or Canada, though I think Canada does a better job than the U.S., but we tend not to do a very good job at discussing complex issues. I'm not sure there's a solution to that. I think that perhaps we're at a place where uh, you'll have some of the worst elements of both the left and the right arguing with each other um, and kind of feeding off of each other. But for these complex issues we face in the 21st century, I think w w the public sure as hell deserves a better discourse than what it usually gets from the political class. All right. More at uh, DefendDemocracy.org. Uh, David, great insight. Thanks so much for joining us. here. appreciate this. Good joining you. Y'all take care. All right. Take care. David Gardenstein, Ross, Senior Fellow of the uh, Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. I mean, it's an interesting point he makes. There's some theoretical level of risk when you uh, bring in thousands upon thousands of refugees. But if you're a terrorist organization and you want to get somebody into Canada to execute a terrorist attack, you got the option of just putting that person on a plane, traveling to Canada, or waiting around in a refugee camp, hoping to win that lottery and get uh, invited to come to Canada, then passing all the screening. If you're convinced you can trick the screeners, you're convinced that you can get into Canada uh, with your 
lie, your story, then why wouldn't you just buy a plane ticket, land at the, the Toronto airport, and give them the same story? There's the easy way and there's the hard way, and the refugee uh, uh, route might be the hard way. Because Roger mentioned uh, there are now five governors in the United States who have made it known to the U.S. president that they will not accept any refugees. Not quite the same thing, but interestingly, Saskatchewan's premier today uh, making it known. He, he released this letter that he has sent to Justin Trudeau urging the prime minister to reconsider his goal, his timetable of bringing 25,000 Syrian refugees to Canada by the end of the year. Brad Wall says he is concerned that the current date-driven plan could severely really undermine the refugee screening process. Uh, he is asking uh, the prime minister to suspend the plan, reevaluate the school. He says, I understand that the overwhelming majority of refugees are fleeing violence and pose no threat to anyone. Your desire to help these people is noble. We share that desire. But says, even if a small number of individuals who wish to do harm to our country are able to enter Canada as a result of a rushed refugee resettlement process, the results could be devastating. And he cites the attacks in Paris as a grim reminder of the death and destruction that even a small number of malevolent individuals can inflict upon a peaceful country and its citizens. There's gasoline to throw in a fire here. And the fire is the, the conversation, the rhetoric that is blazing from both sides of politics here. It bothers me. I think that one of the biggest risks in allowing uh, this many refugees into the country is the conversations that we'll be having about them when they get here. What a threat they are. How afraid we are of certain people. And that that could lead to further marginalization of some people. The Boston Marathon bombers are an example of that. Two people that weren't necessarily accepted in America and found their own way to cause havoc. Right. They came as refugees, but they didn't come as, uh, you know, terror cell. They didn't come as, as radicalized individuals just waiting for the order to attack. They came as refugees, to be sure, but they, they became radicalized. Precisely. We needn't have that happen here. There's not one liberal voter in this country that couldn't find it in themselves to forgive their leader for relaxing. I'm not even going to say break, for relaxing this promise and not bringing in 25,000 by January 1st. Right. If it's March 1st and, and not January 1st, or if it's June 1st and not January 1st, why is that uh, a major setback? Why is that necessarily a bad thing? We, we still intend, again, we're talking about resettling refugees. We're not talking about people who otherwise are going to be stuck in their homes in Syria. We're talking about people who are out of Syria, out of Iraq, and we're going to resettle them in Canada. So if Trudeau eases up and says, okay, we're going to give it a few extra months to make sure we do it right, that's That would certainly be forgivable. We do have some open phone time here, 403-974-8255. And texts have been pouring in all morning at 770-770. We'll try to go through some of those as well. A lot of strong opinions, obviously, on all angles of this story, in particular the two big Canadian questions. Uh, is it the right time to be pulling back uh, on the mission, targeting ISIS uh, in the Middle East? And is it the right time to be taking in 25,000 refugees from Syria. These are two big questions that the Prime Minister is going to have to deal with. And he has, he has made his views quite clear. His policy is quite clear on both. He's going to bring the planes home at some point. We don't know when exactly. He's going to bring 25,000 refugees here by the end of the year. I wonder how long we are until uh, we hear a Main Street Technologies poll on these two questions. It's uh, striking to me that the Prime Minister is quite likely wrong on both counts. Well, it's a question worth asking, especially since one of the reasons he gave specifically this morning for ending the the air campaign is that Canadians support ending the air campaign. What is he basing that on? He cited the election on October 19th. Oh, is that what we voted for? I didn't was know that, we did. Was that the referendum I, on airstrikes in the Middle East? I think it was a referendum on a lot of things, but not that, I don't think. Hi, John. Thanks for the phone call. 
Hey, there you go. A paratrooper first out the door this morning. How are you fellas doing? We're doing great. Good to hear you. Hey, listen, we've spoken before. You know who I am. Yes, sir. i got a real short, okay? Okay. Uh, my friend who is from uh, Lethbridge, he's not in Iraq right now. You know who he is. We haven't ever met him. He'd love to talk to you, but he's in a unit now that he can't. That doesn't exist. So you know who I'm talking about. Okay. Right? All right. Anyways, he's not on the ground. He's actually in Alberta. But he uh, he uh, told me, he says, you know what? He said, well, when we paint targets, and let's face it, that's what they're doing over there, okay? They're assisting the Kurds to paint targets. The Canadian fighter pilots, they want to hear a Canadian voice on that other end. They want to know that what they're doing is right. That's one thing. But they also say on the other side, let's just do it real quick on the on the refugee thing. A lot of people believe, why don't we just take all the refugees, get them into southern Turkey, Okay, get them safe into southern Turkey, get them into good housing, good shelters, and then let's put it this way, go and take on ISIS with special forces and bombing campaigns. And once we get serious boots on the ground, because that's going to come to special forces, then the uh, the refugees can move back into Syria. You know, maybe there won't, won't be a lot left in Syria, you know, but let's look at World War II. After World War II was done, all those countries rebuilt. Yeah, sure. So, I know. Yeah, I get what you're saying, John. You're talking about a situation where you could get all the refugees out of Syria so that you'd clear the battleground of innocents and uh, basically all the blood you spill would be bad guys. Absolutely. I, li- I, I like it, John. Hey, thanks for the call and pass on our best wishes to your friend, okay? I will do. Thanks. Thank Take you, care. sir. Bye-bye. Appreciate that. You know, it was interesting. It was Rick Santorum, of all people. Wow. Was, you know, a fringe uh, presidential candidate in, in the U.S. and the Republicans. But he actually made what was kind of an interesting point. If you're looking for a, an argument against taking refugees, his point was that if we clear the Middle East, if we clear that region of all the moderate Muslims and the Christians and the Jews, uh, everybody who wants to leave, and we help get them out of there. We're essentially cleansing the land of of the very people that ISIS wants to cleanse. They don't want moderate Muslims. They don't want Christians. They don't want Jews. They don't want Yazidis in their midst. They want those people gone. I, you know, it's, I don't know that it's an argument against taking refugees because it's – I don't know that we can turn and say to those people, no, you should stay there. Because that, that'll really stick it to ISIS if you guys refuse to leave. I mean, these people are leaving because they fear for their lives. I mean, that's the whole point. But it is interesting. I mean, how much do we do we help ISIS by getting these people out of there? Once someone's here as a refugee, they're they're not going home. They're here. They're, they're gone. There's no going back. They're 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 now in in Canada. Whereas these these refugees who are in the temporary camps, I mean, there's still the prospect of them of maybe at yeah. some point them returning home. But under what circumstances? When that's going to happen? Is it a year and five years and ten years? Is that a, a realistic existence to to be stuck in a camp for ten years? Let's get back to the phones nine seven four eight two five five. Hello, Ron. How are you? Hi. How's it going? Yeah. Well, thanks. Look, when Europe Nazism started up in Europe, people had three options. They had either to be complacent, they had the option to be to compromise their beliefs, or they had the option to resist. Now we've had these attacks in, in in Paris and whatnot, and I was on Facebook over the weekend, and there's a group that's in Germany. They're called Politically Incorrect, and they got a blog that's on there. They've put out a couple of videos, and they're quite anti-Muslimification of Europe, and they're mm-hmm. quite anti, uh, <clears throat> anti-refugee. Mm-hmm. The thing that I'm looking at here for European society and the greater impact that I'm thinking that is cause for concern is just the marginalization and the total collapse of society. Because 
how much these attacks that we've had here in Paris, they're going to polarize society. And they're polarizing society, not just in Europe, but also here in North America. We bring these 25,000 refugees in. <clears throat> what kind of polarization is, are we going to see in Canadian society? What kind of polarization are they going to see in the States or in Europe? And what kind of effect is that going to have? Are we going to start having retaliatory uh, terrorist attacks or retaliatory actions and whatnot? And this is, in my mind, is, the greater, uh, is, is going to be the greater risk and is going to be, have the greater impact on, on, on life in Europe. Because when you get that polarization, that, like your guest previously had, talked about, is that's going to make it easier for ISIS to um, recruit more. Yeah, that's operatives. right. They get their hooks into people a lot better. Ron, thanks very much for the phone call. And I think Ron raises a lot of points, and that's actually my chief concern. Like, here's a text message that says, when you let a group of refugees into Calgary, they form cliques and they live in the same area and carry on their old customs. Look at Bridgeland's Italians. Right, I guess all those Italian refugees from some time ago. Uh, Somalians in Forest Lawn, Chinatown, Little Vietnam. And they are uh, today speaking the old country language, keeping old customs. I'm afraid of a bunch of Syrians landing here with their customs. Now, I'll tell you something. Uh, if the Syrians brought their customs here, I'd be okay with that. I'd be really okay with people who like to get together, drink coffee and smoke shisha. I'd be really okay with people who like to get together and have feasts around roast meat. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's a custom that I like. Mind you, when we talk about the customs of the Italians or the Vietnamese or the Chinese, I also like those customs too. I like the festivals and I like the food and I like the family gatherings and whatnot. These are the things that we can choose to take part in and invite other people to take part in with us, or we can absolutely fear them from a distance and further marginalize them and light their mosques on fire like they did in Peterborough. That's that's my biggest concern, is that we would invite, we would bring a community over here and then say, please stay over there, and that would cause problems that we could prevent by being more welcoming. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I think it's a valid criticism of, of Canada's official multiculturalism that sure. we, we, we've created that to some extent. Maybe we're not as, as integrated as we could be or should be. Um, but again, I, I, I mean, to each his own. If, if that's how someone chooses to live, uh, then, then that's fine. That, none of that affects me in any, in any serious way, I, I don't think. Uh, so I don't know why it would be any different for any other ethnic or or any group from from any particular country if if that's how they choose to live, right? There, there's a difference between those who choose to immigrate to Canada and then maybe don't integrate as much as as we'd like them to versus somebody who's a refugee who we're giving a, a safe haven to, and we hope that once they come here. Uh, they'll be grateful for the opportunity to, to be in this country. They'll embrace life as a Canadian, et cetera. But, I mean, you know, there's no guarantee in that sense uh, that they're going to, to integrate in Canadian society. Maybe they will live in communities where they, they speak their language with others who speak the same language. But that doesn't necessarily represent a threat to us either. And I think we need to distinguish between the two. But listen, we got to take a break here. We're going to come back. More time for your phone calls, 974-8255. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770.